So if you're part of Roots, you can head down right now. So junior high ministry, you can head back to your room. That would be great. Hey, I showed that because um, there's a challenge in there. We are teaching through the book of Ephesians. And um, my challenge to you is to read Ephesians. Um, it was funny. Last night I was thinking about this. I, you know, you can Google anything. So I Googled, how long does it take to read Ephesians? And the answer is 17 minutes. So I don't know if Google's right, but even if Google's wrong, it might take you 20 minutes. But the point is, uh, I can't teach the book of Ephesians in, in one sitting. There's too much. I can barely teach the passage we have today. Um, but my challenge to you is read Ephesians. Read Ephesians three, four, five times. Sit down and read it if it takes you 20 minutes. Um, maybe read it weekly while we're going through the series. And the hope is, as we journey through these different books of the Bible and we teach through these different books of the Bible, you'll begin to see the whole sweep, as he says, of the book. You'll begin to hear phrases and you'll be thinking about, oh, I remember how that connects to this, and you'll see the broader picture. And I think sometimes he's right. It's dangerous when we just take little passages of Scripture and we don't put it into the, the whole of Scripture. So this was a challenge to me when I saw it, and I just wanted to uh, share it with you. So uh, last week I was uh, off. I was in Sioux Falls for the seminary training, and uh, it was great. And lots of you have asked me how that's going, and it's going great. I'm making a lot of new friends along the way, and it's been Good. But one of the things that happens whenever I'm on the road in any kind of work sort of context and people know that you're a pastor, they ask this question. They always say, so what's your church like? Right? What's your church like? And, and they're asking the question, like, like how big is it? What's the, what's the worship style? Is it liturgical? Is it old? Is it young? Is it, you know, they're really asking the question, if I were to come to your church, what would I experience? And, and the truth of the matter is whenever that happens, I sort of get excited because I like to talk about our church. And I like to share with people what God is doing in our context. And I usually find myself even sitting up a little more straight and, and telling people about our mission statement. And you know what our mission statement is, right? We are? Let's say it one more time. We are? And the reason I love talking about it is because we're actually living into that. We are actually living into our mission statement. A lot of organizations have mission statements that are um, kind of a wish, if you will, but, but we actually get to live into it. So I get to sit with people and I get to talk about what the mosaic means, that we're economically diverse, that we're racially diverse, that we have a diversity in age, that we have uh, even uh, the, the new thing that kind of Norfletter introduced is even a, a preference diversity. There's different things that we prefer amongst each other. There's, there's this wide array of diversity that exists. It goes beyond just race, but race is a part of it. And I, and I love to talk about that. I love to talk about how that shapes even our worship style, how you can come on any given Sunday and get a little different feel for worship because we're trying to minister to the mosaic uh, that we are. And, and I'm telling this story and, and talking about it. And one of the guys said to me, he said, well, it sounds to me like, like you have an identity crisis. And I thought about it for a minute, and I understood how he could get that, because really, I've talked about this before, the, the norm in church is to decide who your target market is and to make your church fit to the target market. And we don't get to, to play in that sandbox, if you will, that we're going to be a mosaic, and so we do it differently. But I said, no, that is our identity. That, that mosaic, that's our identity. That's who we really are. So I, I spend the week having lots of these conversations and telling people how excited I am about what God's doing here at Grace. And, and here's what I know. Sometimes when I talk about the mosaic, um, I want you to know, I know that we are not the only church in the world that's a mosaic, but, but I also know what God is doing here is very unique. It's not the only place, but it's unique. So I get excited talking about it, and people are pretty intrigued 
uh, by what God is doing. So that's my week away, and I come back on Monday morning, and my routine is to start Monday morning by reading through what I'm going to be teaching that week and beginning to study it. And, and it was so cool to walk back in and to read the passage that, that I'm teaching this week and to realize, uh, even though I knew this, but to realize it again as I read Scripture, that this thing of being a mosaic, it's God's heart. It's God's desire. It's God's mission, not our mission. And, and so we're going to see that as a part of, of this week's study. And, and one of the things we're going to learn is that there's one thing that we can do that will help us live into being a mosaic, striving to live like Jesus. There's actually one thing that comes out of the passage this week that you and I can do that helps us to live into being a mosaic. So remember what a mosaic is. We've talked about this before, but, but by true definition, a mosaic is, is a bunch of random size, shape, color pieces, sometimes of glass, but sometimes of other material that come together to make this beautiful work of art. So we really are a mosaic, and it really is God's heart. So grab your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 22. So if you're using an electronic reader, that's great. We want to encourage you to do that. Um, I want to encourage you to write things down. We've said this a lot, but I just want it to be uh, something you hold on to. Then your bulletin, there's a place to take notes or bring. I, I noticed a lot of people are bringing journals now. I love that. If you have a journal, bring your journal and just be journaling what you hear. Uh, you'll remember maybe, if we're lucky, 30% of what I say. Uh, you'll remember everything that Scott said because it was funnier, but you'll remember 30% of what I said. You'll remember 70% of what you write down. So when you hear a phrase, when you hear God whisper something in your ear, and you know, man, I want to hold on to that, write it down. You're going to be much more likely to carry it on with you. So uh, make sure you do that. And the other thing we want to encourage you to is take advantage of social media. If you hear something today as you're sitting out there that um, stirs in you, and it may not even be what I said, it may be something we sang, or it may be just something related to what we're talking about that God whispers in your ear again, uh, we want to encourage you to, to put it out there on social media. Tweet it. I, I still can't say that without feeling silly. Tweet it. Um, that is a weird word. Put it on Facebook, whatever. We want you to do that. And what we're saying is, look, we know that you have a sphere of influence. We might as well take advantage of the electronic age and take the word of God and what God is doing in your life and put it out there. So feel free to, to use social media uh, while you're sitting out there. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 says these words. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, by human hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God, people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises and becomes the holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you 
two are being built together to become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you would give me the wisdom to unpack the mountain of theology that exists in this one short little passage. Um, There's no way that we can cover everything, so I pray that the things I cover would just land on fertile soil, that it would bear fruit. I pray that we would be drawn into your word in such a way that we would go back and and ask the Spirit of God to reveal those other things that I don't have time to cover, and that people would be hungry for your word. They would be reading through Ephesians and studying Ephesians because there's so much in here for us as followers of Christ to hold on to. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 11 starts with the words, therefore remember, which causes us to ask an obvious question, what are we supposed to remember? If he wants us to remember something, it's good to say, well, what am I supposed to remember? The truth of the matter is he wants us to remember everything that he's just written, or at least be aware of everything he's just written. So chapter 1 all the way through the beginning of chapter 2, there's lots of stuff in there. And he's saying, remember this. But he also then takes a minute and he kind of summarizes, or I would say repackages a lot of what he already says and writes it again. So he's saying, hey, remember what I said, but, but here's a way of saying it a little differently. Remember these two things. So look at verse 11. It says, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body by human hands. And here's the deal. There's a lot more going on here than we realize because the cultural implications of what he's written is, pr- is pretty lost on us. So he's saying something pretty dramatic as he writes this this talk of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And the, and the, the fact of the matter is, and, and I know this is an odd thing, but the Jewish people referred to themselves as circumcised, which is a strange characteristic to make your claim to fame. But that's what they did, and they would call themselves the circumcision. But you see, it wasn't just a, a word. It was a word of superiority. It was a way of them sort of, of taking pride. It was almost a bragging sort of statement that we are the circumcised. It was a way of, of distinguishing that they were separated out, that they themselves were special. And actually what they believed is they were above other people. And so, so the idea of calling themselves circumcised was a way of, of giving them self-honor. It was a way of, 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 of really saying, I am more privileged than the rest of the world. And by very definition, when they would call somebody uncircumcised, which in this case was everybody that wasn't Jewish, it was kind of a put-down. Actually, it was a put-down. It was a way of demeaning. It was derogatory. It wasn't just a, hey, we, we're, we're Jewish and you're not Jewish. There was, there was something meant behind these words. It was meant to be an insult. And what they were really saying is, you are outsiders. And it was a, it was a kind of a phrase of disdain and uncleanness. And ooh, those people are, are icky. We just don't like them. Somebody laughs when I say icky. Is that not a word anymore? I have to be careful of the words I use up here, okay? They're the non-elect. They're the disobedient. And you remember when we studied chapter 1 and we talked about predestination and, and what that means. We talked about you're the elect, you're predestined. And one of the things I said that I taught was that anytime we use those words to put ourselves in a position of being above others, we get sideways right away with the gospel. You see, God didn't call you to be superior. He didn't call you to lord over people. He called you to be servants to the world. He actually called you, predestined you, as the same as he did the Jews, to be a light to the nations, not so they could lord over other people, not so they could be. It was a call to servanthood is what it was. 
but they missed all that. And that's, that's an important thing for us to hold on to because when we begin to take a group of people and put them in a, in a class or a grouping and then give a name to them that's somewhat demeaning, and so we would call ourselves Christians, and then we would talk about the gay community, for instance, and, and use that in a demeaning, demoralizing sort of, sort of way, a, a, a language of disdain, then we separate ourselves away from them and we think that we're superior. And the truth of the matter is we can stand on the truth of the scriptures of what the scriptures say is right and wrong and we can still love other people. But we have to be careful not to categorize them and, and give them words or labels that separates them out from the body of Christ because Christ came to reconcile the world to himself. Right? So Paul's trying to make things perfectly clear. And one of the ways he helps to make it clear, if you look in, in most of your translations, there's probably a parenthetical statement, a statement that comes within two, two parentheses. It says, which is done by the body in human hands. That's in verse 11. And really all he's saying is you think it separated you out that you were circumcised, but just so you know, that wasn't really a spiritual thing for you either. You just did that because it was part of your ritual. It was part of your custom. You were, you were following the customs, but you didn't even understand what was going on. It was just a thing done by human hands. There wasn't much going on spiritually there either is what he's saying. So he's kind of bringing everybody to a level playing field before he goes on. He says, everyone was formerly one thing, but I want you to remember. So look at verse 12 and 13. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant and the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were outsiders, but through Christ now you're an insider. You were lost, but through Christ now you're found. You were unforgiven, but through Christ now you're forgiven. You were a people and a person without hope, but through Christ, now you have hope. And he's saying, you need to remember this. You, you need to remember all that Christ did for you and all that Christ has given to you. You need to be mindful of this, is what he's saying. And I love in verse 13, the words it says, you have been brought near. The key word is brought. God did it. God brought you to himself through Christ. You know, sometimes we give ourselves way too much credit. Sometimes we think that we made some kind of moral choice along the way and, and we figured this God thing all out and because we figured it out and because we're smarter than other people, we decided to follow Christ. But the more I study the scripture, the more I realize this journey of coming to know who Christ is is a spiritual thing. God reveals it to us. God draws us to himself. God does the work. God brought you to Christ. It ought to create a sense of, of, of humbleness in you and, and humility of knowing that God did the work. God made this clear to me. I didn't figure this out on my own. Think about when Jesus was talking to Peter. He said, bless you, you didn't figure this out on your own. The Holy Spirit revealed it to you. So, verse 11 and 12 start with the same phrase. And the phrase is, remember. Remember. And here's the crazy part. You read the first three chapters of Ephesians. This is the only imperative. You know what an imperative? An imperative is, a, is an instruction or even you could say it's a command. Right? This is the only command. In three chapters of Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, this is the only imperative. The imperative is remember. Remember. 
We have to remember. And the truth of the matter is this discipline of remembering is it's thematic throughout all of the scriptures. When you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you see this idea that God wants them to remember. So think about it. Every time something amazing happened in the life of a person or the life of a, the people of God, what did they do? They would stop and they would build a memorial, a monument. They would take a bunch of stones and stack them up. They would build an altar in that place. They would somehow put something up that when they would go by that again, they would remember. That's what a memorial is, right? A way of remembering. They would remember all that God has done. And the other thing they would do is they would write a psalm. They would write an actual song. So we see Miriam writing a song. We see Moses writing songs. We see David writing songs. Whenever there's a a major event, one of two things, and sometimes both things happen, they would set up a memorial and they would write a song. Why? Because they didn't want to forget all that God has done in their lives. Because when we remember what God has done, it helps us to have faith in what God is going to do. So we need to learn and we need to practice this discipline. And what I want to do real quick is I want to just read through a bunch of scriptures and just have you listen to them. And they're going to come up on the screen. There's no way that you, unless you were the guy that always won the sword drill when you were a little kid, you're probably not going to keep up. And I didn't didn't mean for you to. I'm just going to read through them real quick. I just want you to see this theme in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7 says, but don't be afraid. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Don't have fear But remember, Deuteronomy 8 says, Remember the Lord your God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you have anything, it's because God gave you the ability to have it. You need to remember that. Deuteronomy 24, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Remember what your life was like and what God did for you. Psalms 42 These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throngs. I remember what it was like to give praise to God. I remember how people showed up. There's this act of remembering that, that the psalmist is writing about. Psalm 42 says, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, the solution to my soul being downcast is I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Harmon. Psalm 63, on my bed I will remember you. I will think of thoughts in the watches of the night. Psalms 106, and this is, this is so important that we see this. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindness, and they rebelled by the sea. If we refuse to remember, if we take this to be truth, if we refuse to remember, then hearts of rebellion can spring up within us. If we forget all that God has done, it can be the seeds of a rebellious spirit, if we take this to be literal. 143, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Psalm 105, remember the wonders he has performed, his miracles and his rulings he has given. You see, when we are intentional to remember all that God has done, it recalibrates our spirit. It points our hearts towards God. It helps us to say, if if God has done all this, if God is moving in the lives of his people, and if God is moving in my life, then I can trust him with my life going forward. You see, when I remember how gracious God is to me, when I remember the grace that God has given to me, when I think about even being on this stage and where I was when I walked into this church and how much grace God bestowed on me, it makes me more gracious towards other people. 
when I know how much grace I've received, I am more gracious to, to other people. When I know how much God has forgiven me, I can be much more forgiving of other people. When I think about the length that God went to to pull me in, to bring me into understanding of the kingdom of God, I'm more willing to go to great lengths to tell other people about Christ. So this remembering, it changes who we are. If we are going to be a mosaic, striving to what? live like Jesus, then we need to remember all that God has done. We have to remember all that Jesus did. How would we ever be like Jesus if we can't remember all that Jesus did? It's part of us becoming more and more like Christ is to have this discipline of remembering as a part of who we are. So there's a lot more in here. So look at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one. In other words, he's brought all people together the two one, and destroyed the barrier by dividing the wall of hostility. He himself is our peace. This gets a little bit confusing here whenever we get to the language stuff, but I just think it's important. The word peace here he's writing in Greek is, is erene, um, and it was a greeting. Actually, it was more of a, uh, what you would say to one another when you were departing company. And so it was the Greek translation of the word that we probably most of us heard is shalom. So when two people would spend time together and they were getting ready to go their separate way, they would say shalom, which was really just saying peace be with you, may you have peace, may peace be a part of your life. It was a natural way of, of parting company. And so Paul's using that same word, he's using it in the Greek, not the Hebrew, because it was written in Greek, but he's saying the same thing. And what he's saying is that Jesus is our shalom, that Jesus came to proclaim a message of shalom. So it's important for us to know, well, well what is peace? What is erene? What is shalom? They're all the same word, kind of mean the same thing. And, and if we're not careful, we think it means, you know, like two countries aren't going to be at war. It means that there's not going to be any problems around us, that there's not going to be any uncertainty or unrest. And, and that's not it at all, because this is something that is more internal than external. Now, the reality is when it happens internally, it has a huge effect externally on our relationships. But, but this thing that Jesus is bringing, this thing that Paul is talking about is, is more about inner wholeness. It's about uh, inner prosperity. It's about uh, security in who you are. It's, 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 it's about having good relations with other people, not perfect relations, not a life without, without chaos, because none of us are going to get away from that. It's about integrity. It's, it's like this all-inclusive thing that, that is being given to us to have a, a peace in our spirit. It's really a a profound thing to meditate on. So shalom or peace is God's desire for his people. And how do we get it? Well, Jesus came to give it to us. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's, it's part of having the Spirit of God in us. And what it does is it allows us to respond to the things in our lives differently. It comes from God. But here's the deal. I believe this peace that we have comes when we remember all that God has done. Because when we remember all that God has done, then it takes the pressure of, off of us to make it all happen. And we realize, wait, God's at work in my life. God is the one doing what God is doing. I can trust God is doing. And it settles our spirit. It takes us off of a performance sort of mentality and allows us to settle into what God is doing in our lives. Shalom, peace, edene. It's, a, it's an incredible part of, of what we can have when we walk with Christ and we realize all that Christ has done in our lives. And when I have peace with myself, within myself, I can have peace with men. But the opposite is true. When I do not have peace in my spirit, I cannot be at peace with Meg. I cannot be at peace with my kids. I cannot be at peace with the other people on staff. I cannot be at peace with my friends. Something happens internally 
that brings me to a place of peace with who I am and who God is and all God has done for me. I'm at peace with God as my good, good father, and then I can love others well. So we need this sort of peace in order to have peace, right? They're, they're, they're connected to one another. I love the fact that we are a mosaic, but here's the deal. Because we are a mosaic, this is more difficult because we see the world differently. And the best example I can give of that is the stuff that went down in Ferguson. We, as a body of Christ, saw that event very differently, and in a lot of cases, very differently based on our ethnic background. The way I saw it was different than the way a lot of you saw it. The way I know how to respond to it is different. And the question is, can we see things differently? You know what? This congregation, because we are diverse, are going to vote differently. We are going to vote differently, and that doesn't mean the people who vote different than you are going to hell. You can vote differently and still go to heaven. But the question is, can we have these differences of opinion, and can we have the peace of God inside of us so that we can enter into conversations? Can we do life together and still be different? Because God is calling us to unity, not uniformity. He's not calling us to be the same. He's calling us to be united. And this peace, this shalom that Christ gives is what allows us to enter into each other's differences and not become adversaries. So the, the word in verse 14, and I just have to put this out there because you know it's kind of like thematic in my life. Verse 14, the word is translated, um, sorry, maybe I should look it up before I say it. Uh, the word is translated barrier, uh, actually could be translated fence, and some of your translations may, may say fence, so, so the NIV says that, that, there's, that he came to take down the barrier or the fence, and when I started thinking about the fence and looking up that word and thinking about that word, I immediately thought about curtains. Now you're all like, oh yeah, sure, everything's a curtain, Doug. <laughs> I get it. But the fact is, it says Jesus came to take down a fence. Why would we put up a fence? To keep others out, to keep things out, to keep us in. There's a, there's a dividing thing that's, that's represented by a fence, and Jesus is all about tearing down fences, tearing about barriers, tearing down curtains in our lives, the thing that keep us separated. So let's keep going. Verse 15, his purpose was creating himself one new man out of two. Again, don't get caught up in... Jew, Gentile, he's using that because part of it's what's the big cultural issue that he's trying to deal with. But what he's saying is he came to bring all people groups to himself, which is why the mosaic is God's heart. Verse 16, he came and he preached peace to you who who were far away and peace to those who were near. Paul's intention here, as he writes this, is to make a messianic declaration. He wants to make sure that the readers know this Jesus that I'm talking about, he's the Messiah. And so he leans into the language of, of, uh, of Isaiah 52. So Isaiah 52, actually 52 and 53, is this huge messianic prophecy about Jesus and, and the coming of Jesus. But he leans into that same language. And so the early first century readers would have known he's borrowing some language from Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, which many of you have heard, is the how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, shalom, bring good tidings, who proclaim salvations, who say to Zion, you... Your God reigns. And you ask yourself, well, when did Jesus preach peace? Everything Jesus did was a proclamation of peace. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection was a proclamation of peace. 
peace on earth, goodwill to men. Jesus came to bring peace. He came to give us peace in ourselves, peace with God, and peace with one another. It is the message of Christ that we could be at peace with God. Keep going, verse 19. Paul uses these kind of two word pictures to help us to remember. A good way to remember is to have a picture in your mind. And so he says, we are members of God's household. I don't know if you were here last week. If you weren't, you should get the CD. But Norflet talked about his kids going to a friend's house. You remember this? I think he said it was in the Carolinas somewhere, right? Am I close? Yep. So they go to the friend's house, and the friend welcomes them in and says, look, my house is your house. You can do anything you want here. And the kids kind of sequester themselves in the bedroom, and they don't, they're not really coming out. They know they have full access to the house, but they're not taking advantage of full access to the house. And then he talked about when we go to my brother's house, they tear the house up. They put their feet on the furniture. They raid his refrigerator. One place they know they belong. The other place they don't know they belong. And that image really stuck in my head. When I read this, I immediately thought of, of that image. And the truth of the matter is, Paul's saying, look, you belong. You are members of God's household. You are not a guest. You're not just even just invited in because I like you. You are members of God's household. You are part of God's family. So even in the Christian circles when we talk about, hey, brother, hey, brother, hey, sister, the truth of the matter is that's not just a word. It's theologically true. We are actually brothers and sisters. And even though it's always a little weird for me when people call me Brother Doug, but I don't mind because the truth of the matter is we're brothers, we're sisters, we're members of God's household. We don't have to make an appointment with God. We don't have to go through his administrative assistant. We're his kids. We can talk to him whenever we want to. We have access to God. We are part of God's family. And then Paul takes the same language of a household and being members, and he uses that word household, and he kind of makes a little bit of shift, and he starts talking about the actual building, the actual house. So if you look at verse 20, it says, It's a household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. Here's what I want you to know. I love this. Paul is saying, look, God has a plan. God has been building this house since the beginning. And he built it on the, on the backs of the apostles and, and with Jesus as a cornerstone. But if you keep looking at that, really what he's saying is he's still building his house on our backs. That we are actually building something for the next generation and the next generation. That the church, and in the language here is so cool. He's saying that, that not only is it built according to a plan, the original language actually kind of leans towards built like by a blueprint. They didn't have blueprints in, but that's what it's saying. Like, like God had a plan. It was all laid out. And this thing that's happening is done according to the plan. And then he says, and it all fits together. If you read the language there, that's really just saying that not only is there a plan, but the different parts, they come together perfectly. When you build something according to the plan, it works. It fits together. So you could be building one piece here and one piece here, and then you bring it together. It all fits together perfectly, and something is being built, and it's being built on the backs of us. But if you get the language, what he's saying is, We are the house. So we always talk about you are the temple of God. Well, that's true, but together we become the body of Christ. And in this language, he's saying together we become the temple of Christ, that God is building his church, each one of us fitting together to make this thing called the church. Here's what Paul wants. He wants you to remember He wants you to remember all that God has done. He wants you to remember that you belong, that God brought you in, that you belong to Christ. You belong to God. You are his child. You are his son. You are his daughter. And you fit in the body of Christ. 
Remember all that I've done for you. Remember everything that I've done for you. I never really am sure when we're going to do communion because it just sort of happens on the same Sunday and it's not on my mind. But more often than not, when, when it's scheduled, it is the perfect Sunday, and this is one of those. So it seems like we're brilliant. We're not. God is at work. But what a beautiful Sunday for us to take communion together. Because why does communion exist? To help us to remember. Jesus said, every time you do this, remember what I did for you. Remember, remember. Why is it important to remember? Because when we remember, we have a peace that God is at work in our lives. When we remember, it builds faith. And when we fail to remember, it creates a, a spirit of rebellion in us and self-reliance. And he says, remember. So we get a chance to take communion. So the band's going to come. And they're going to get ready to play. And actually, if the ushers want to come down and get ready to hand out, that's great. And what I'd ask you to do is hold on to the elements. I'll come back up and we'll take them together. But, but as the band gets settled, as the ushers begin to pass out the elements, I want to read for you a list of things for us to hold on to, all from the book of Ephesians. This is just the first two chapters of Ephesians. Remember I said there's only one imperative? The imperative is that we remember Here's what Paul's saying to remember. This is all out of Ephesians. Remember, he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He chose you. He predestined you. He adopted you as a son and a daughter. He's freely given you Jesus. In Jesus, you have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He's lavished on you all wisdom. He makes known the mystery of his will. He brings all things together under the head. In Jesus, we are chosen. He works out everything according to a plan again. He marks us with his Holy Spirit. He gives us the spirit of wisdom. He enlightens the eyes of our hearts. He gives us glorious inheritance. He gives us the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. He made us alive in Christ. He showed us mercy. He chose us in incomparable riches. He gave us the gift of salvation. He made us a work of art. He made us one, united in Christ. He destroyed the fence that separates us. He is our peace and our our shalom. He gives us access to the Father through the Spirit. He made us a family, and he's building his church. That's two chapters of one book of the Bible. And Paul's saying, just remember this, and it will change everything. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even as we take these elements, that we will remember. We remember the cost you paid to do these things, to reconcile. So we remember Jesus and, and his, uh, his desire to to not hold on to equality with God, but to make himself nothing, taking on the very form of a, of a man, but not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant that was willing to go to the cross so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could have peace, so that we could have shalom. Lord, help us to remember. As we pass out these elements, help us to remember. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song. The song is called Describe. Um, I looked up the word Describe this morning um, as they were singing it, and I was sitting in here. And the word Describe means to be mindful of, to, to, to have a mindset towards something. So it's the perfect song for us to sing as we hand out the elements. And again, hang on to them, and we'll pray together. Yes. Cry 
Glory 
that on the very night that all of Jesus' closest friends were going to betray him, when he knew exactly what he was facing, nothing surprised him. Everything was in his control. They met in the upper room, and he took the bread, and he broke the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you take it, remember me. It says in the same way, he took the cup, Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice, a cup that had been passed around for 1,400 years, and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood. Every time you drink from the cup, remember me. Lord, my prayer for us as a church that we would never take this sacrament lightly. That we would never stop remembering your body broken, your blood shed, so that we could have peace with God. Lord, I pray for the people in this room that this is just starting to make sense to them, that they would be willing to just throw their arms up and say, I'm done fighting it. God is God, and I am not, and I need Jesus in my life. I pray that people would make that decision this morning, give their lives to you, because it is the only way to have shalom, to have peace. Lord, you are a good, good father. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to worship. So we're going to sing one more song, and I encourage you to throw your whole heart and soul into it.